If you have brought along with you a Bible, now is the perfect time to take it out and open it to the book of Romans. But if you don't have a Bible or forgot it, we got one for you on the screens. And you can take advantage of that today. Now we're kind of uh, catching up. Uh, we've already looked at part of the passage before us. Our scripture reading today will be Romans chapter 5 verses uh, 14 to 21. Verses 14 to 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification uh, and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also must reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word, let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we open up your book this morning, we pray your spirit will open up our heart. And we pray that you will speak to us because this is the primary way that you address us and speak to us is through your word. And we thank you for that word. It is truth. And it cuts through all the deceptions and lies that our hearts are prone to believe. And we pray the Holy Spirit who inspired this word would also illumine our hearts so that we can perceive and see the truth and how the truth is speaking to us even this day. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, this passage is a passage dealing with two representative uh, heads of the human race. One of them's name is Adam. And the other one's name is the Lord Jesus Christ, or Christ. And we are all connected, as it were, to the first man, Adam, and those who have um, turned away from their own strength and ability to be righteous and live righteous and achieve a good life 
and have rested upon the offer of the gospel in Jesus Christ are united to him and we're in Christ. And so what Paul is saying is there is a, a perspective one can have. Now, the first Adam failed. He was a representative for us. And we know that God created a perfect world. As a matter of fact, after each day of creation in the book of Genesis, God says, and it was good. And so the world as God made it was a paradise. It was a garden. It was a sanctuary of his presence. And he put in that sanctuary Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth, to till the ground, to develop all the resources that God had packed into it, to develop culture, things like music, like art, like literature, like uh, technology, like anything you can think of. We were placed here to do that. And God said, I place only one prohibition on you, Adam, and it was a test, a probation as it were, to see if Adam would love him with all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength, and so he told them that there was a tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were not to eat. And the scriptures tell us that the serpent came, serpent being uh, Satan himself, and deceived the woman. She took the fruit. Uh, it looked good to her. It looked like the best fruit in the garden. And she partook of it. She's probably thinking, it's so beautiful. Um, it can't be wrong if it feels so right. And so she takes the fruit, she eats the fruit, and she gives it to her husband, and he's standing there. I don't know what he's doing, but he takes it, and he eats it, and all of the sudden, paradise is lost. All of the sudden, sin entered the world as a power and screwed everything up. And so what I would say is this. People all the time want to blame God for everything that's wrong with the universe, don't they? Everybody gets angry with God. People resent God because certain things happen to me. And this is a depraved world. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Sin has been let loose into this beautiful, ordered, uh, gifted creation that God provided for us. And that sin has wreaked havoc upon it. We have wars, we have murders, we have crime. We have people who cheat on their spouses. We have all kinds of destructive things going on. In Las Vegas, 10 high school students beat up one high school student and killed him last week. Killed him. And so we see all this wickedness and evil and we scream out, why doesn't God, what's wrong with God? Why doesn't he deal with this? Why doesn't he? And the issue is God made a perfect world. It's not God that sinned, it's Adam that sinned. And the end result of Adam's sin is that everybody he represents, which is the whole human race, is born into sin. And our birth into sin makes our life in conflict with God. There's an enmity, there's a, um, a, a struggle there's a, 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 even inside sort of a, a resentment toward God and his law and his ways. And we inherit that from our father, Adam. We don't become sinners by sinning. We sin because we're already sinners. I ran across a nice little story that I'd never heard before and I had never seen before. And that's kind of hard to do in the realm of what we're talking about. And this little story was about... A, um, 
A frog and a scorpion. Anybody know the story of the frog and the scorpion? I didn't. Uh, sin has become part of our fallen human nature, and uh, it messed up our moral compasses like a magnet and has become part of our constitution. Maybe you've heard the story of the scorpion and the frog. There was once a frog who was sitting on a lily pad, and a scorpion came along and noticed uh, that the frog was there, and the frog who was sitting on his lily pad noticed the scorpion on the riverbank. And he was standing around and prancing around with some frustration. The scorpion called out to the frog, Mr. Frog, will you take me to the other side of the river by letting me ride on your back? The frog was hesitant as frogs did not trust scorpions and were naturally frightened of them, so the frog replied, Sorry, Mr. Scorpion, but I cannot carry you across, for you might sting me. Well, the scorpion retorted, Don't be silly. If I stung you while I was on your back, you would die, but I would too. As you sink, I'd be drowned in the river. So the frog passed or paused and thought about it for a number of minutes and decided that it made sense. He says, okay, then, said the frog, climb on my back, Mr. Scorpion, but if you sting me, we will both surely die. So the scorpion jumped on the frog's back, and all was going well as he began to carry him across the river. Just maybe, the frog thought, his fear of the scorpion was truly unfounded. Maybe he was prejudiced against scorpions. But when they were about halfway across the river, the scorpion stung the frog in the back. The frog felt a surge of pain and cried out, Why? Why did you do that, Mr. Scorpion? Now we're both going to die. And the scorpion replied, I don't know, Mr. Frog. I don't know when, what came over me. I guess it's just in my nature. Tragically, sin is in our nature and a nature that results in the destruction and death of all that we care about. And so the wonderful good news of the gospel is there is a second Adam. There is another person who came to undo what the first Adam did, to rescue us from that predicament, to heal us from that virus. It's like Adam let loose a virus in the garden, worse than COVID, because everybody got it. Everybody's born with it, and nobody can fix it. We can't stop it not in our own strength and not in our own power. And so God had prepared for us a second Adam. Death was ushered into the world. The mess occurred. But we're picking up now after that. That's sort of a summary of what we've been up to so far in this chapter. But now I want us to look at Adam and Christ contrasted. Adam and Christ are con contrasted. Having said Adam is a pattern of the one to come. In verse 14, Paul immediately clarifies what he does not mean by that. But the gift of Jesus is not like the trespass of Adam. Verse 15, Paul lists three contrasts between the two men. Contrast number one, the motivation of the heart of each was very, very different. Paul calls Adam's deed a trespass a conscious sin, because Jesus' deed, a free gift. 
This means that Adam's act was a deed of self-aggrandizement or self-assertion. Adam wanted to be God. Some of you are trying that out, aren't you? You're wanting to be your own God. How's it working for you? Not that well, is it? Because you lack the fundamental constitution and qualities and attributes to be God. It's a very frustrating thing to be your own God and lead your own life. But Adam, you know, Satan came and tempted Eve and said, if you take this route, you know, God's holding back from you. He doesn't want you to have equality. Not really. He doesn't want you to be equal with him. But if you eat of this fruit, you will know as God knows. You will be able then for yourself to determine what good is and what evil is and what life is. And they bought it. And they ate it. But, uh, but we know Jesus came to accomplish what Adam himself failed at. Have you ever realized that the temptation uh, in the wilderness of Jesus was the fulfillment of what Adam should have done in the garden and didn't do? Jesus was successful in engaging the devil. Adam himself was not. And so he conquered sin and death. This means that Adam's act was a, a deed of self-assertion contrasted with Jesus' act of self-sacrifice. In other words, Jesus' deed of dying for us was not simply obedience toward God. It was also undeserved compassion for us. Put another way, Adam's action was a breaking of the law, but Jesus' action was an act of righteousness, obedience, and a total fulfillment of what the law demanded. The results of the two deeds are opposite. First, Adam's deed resulted in death, while Christ's results in life. Here is the first of the two consequences of evil listed in the beginning of the passage. Physical death, the effects of Christ's deed undo the effects of Adam's. Second, Adam's deed resulted in condemnation, and Christ's deed results in justification. This is also the second of the two con consequences of evil focused on or listed in verse 12, legal guilt. Again, the effect of Christ's uh, deed undoes the effect of Adam's. The third, the result of Adam's sin is that death reigns, but Paul doesn't say that in Christ life reigns, but rather that we reign in life. Verse 17. This is another contrast Paul is making. Before death reigned over us and we were in bondage, now we're free. The old kingdom within, which was uh, in which we labored is crushed, but we have traded in one slavery for another one just like it. Rather, in the new kingdom of Christ, we become kings ourselves. Christ's kingdom makes us kings, but sin's kingship makes us slaves. The contrast is powerful. Now, this is dense. I understand that. And it's, it's a logical uh, challenge for anyone. Uh, most scholars in the New Testament say that this passage may be the absolute most difficult to grasp and understand because it's so intense. Many people have likened it to a musical composition or a symphony in which there are a number of themes and, and um, uh, 
different uh, movements in the symphony. Uh, so it's, it's very uh, complex, it's very dense, it's very compressed. But the fundamental character here is what Adam did failed and the results of what he did fell upon us. What Christ did was succeed and the benefits of what he has done for us is ours, free, if we have faith. If we look outside of ourselves and trust in him. And so Paul is contrasting here. The differences between Adam and Christ, the two representative heads of the race. The power of the two is different. Paul is at great pains to show that the power and scope of Christ's work is far greater than Adam's. Twice he says, how much more? Verse 15 and verse 17 to show that Christ's work can overwhelm and completely cover and undo the effects of Adam's work. See, that's why we need a Savior from outside of us. The Bible over and over again tells us we cannot fix ourselves. Now, you may be a really self-confident person. You may be a person who feels very sufficient in yourself. But who are you fooling? You probably have to tell yourself that every day because you know deep down inside you're not. We all know that. Nobody's, nobody's uh, you know... Some people think they're waiting for a vacancy in the Trinity. Not going to happen. <laughs> and so my, my encouragement to you is to realize that what Christ did, we need so very much. It's just not a matter of being religious. It's not a matter of uh, attending some church somewhere. It's much deeper than that. It's much more profound than that. We, l we lose the quality of any kind of life only being connected to Adam. Being connected to Christ gives us the one thing that being connected to Adam could never give us, and that is hope. Living hope and power to be different, to be new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so the contrast here continues to work. Uh, the contrast is between sin and grace or gift. Our condemnation is an act of justice, and justice meets out equivalents. Exactly what is deserved. But our justification is an act of grace. And grace overflows and abounds, giving us ten, a hundred, a thousand, an infinity of times more than we deserved. Living in Adam is works. Living in Adam is condemnation. What is condemnation? Condemnation is a legal objective term in the Bible which says... If justice is given to you, you will be condemned. You will be destroyed. You will experience the first death, which is physical, and you will experience spiritual death, which we're all born spiritually dead. And then third, you will experience what the Bible calls the second death, which is death for eternity, separation from God forever. That's what you get from Adam. But what you get from Christ is life justification. You know I can't pass by that word without saying something about it. It's one of my favorite words in the Bible. Justification means that you've been validated. One of my favorite things to do is get parking validated. I love that. I will stand in line with a smile on my face to get parking validated. Why? Because I hate paying for parking. This whole city's turned into a, a big paid parking lot, has it not? 
probably get to grocery stores before it's over with. I don't want to sow that idea in anybody's mind. But we are validated not because of anything we do, but the Lord Jesus Christ came and became a man. He left the glory of heaven. He came to this gory place, this messed up world, this messed up creation, took upon himself our flesh, and in our place as a substitute for us, Jesus lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law perfectly. There was no sin in him. Every positive virtue that could be had, he had it in spades. It was amazing the life that Jesus lived. But he didn't do that for himself or any kind of self-aggrandizement. He did it so he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins because to die for us, he had to be perfect. There had to be no blemish at all in his character. But secondly, he fulfilled for us what God demands from us, which is righteousness. Now, how do I get to heaven? Do I get to heaven because I went to seminary four years and it's taken me 20 to get over it? No. I only say that jokingly because I think a good seminary is worth a lot. But I will say this, how do I get to heaven? How do I? Well, you're a preacher. You know you're going. No, I don't. Evaluated outside of Christ, I'm a goner. I am dead. I have no hope. How do I get to heaven? Well, Jesus came for me and lived the life I should have lived but could never do in a thousand lifetimes. And Jesus died for me. That is, he took the punishment my disobedience brought. And therefore, once a person looks outside of himself and rests upon Christ, trust in the living Christ, close with Christ, find mercy and compassion with Christ, you are declared forever to be no longer condemned but righteous. You have no idea how much you should be jumping up and down inside. If we were Pentecostal, you'd be jumping up and down outside. Sometimes I wouldn't mind if a little of that rubbed off on us. You are right. You have a validating performance record to enter the presence of Christ that is not your own. You're saved by works, but not your works. Christ works. And so Adam came and plunged us into sin and condemnation and judgment and death and everything that's horrible about our existence. And Jesus came to undo it, and he did it. He did it fully. You can't out the grace of God. And he did that for us. And so the wonderful thing is there's another fourth contrast between Adam and Christ that Paul doesn't mention in chapter 5, but he will in chapter 6, and it is this. It's so helpful. Our union with Adam, our federal head, is physical. But our union with Christ, our federal head, is by faith. God unites us with Christ when we believe in him, and that is why Paul can later say, we died with Christ, we were buried with him, we were raised with him, and until we are united to Christ by faith, all that is true of Adam is true of us, but once we are united to Christ by faith, whatever is true of him is true of us. John Stott writes this, 
So then, whether we are condemned or justified, whether we are spiritually alive or dead, depends on which, which humanity we belong to, whether we still belong to the old humanity initiated by Adam or the new humanity accomplished by Christ. Have you closed with Christ? Is, is he just a historical figure, a good teacher, somebody you respect? Or is he your savior? Is he the one that's going to deliver you and save you from this mess we is in? Because it is a big mess. And it's the only hope we have. Now, let's look at Adam and Christ and the similarities or the uh, ways we can compare what both did. If you listen a little faster, we'll get through. Here we go. So, given these fundamental differences, how is Adam a pattern of Christ? How are they similar? Most notably, as we've seen, both stand in for and represent a body of people. And what they have done for our good is transferred to those they represent. Paul uses several different words to get this across. Our sin brought condemnation, but the gift brought justification. Very opposite. The result of one trespass was condemnation, but the result of one act of righteousness was justification. It's not as if Paul is saying here, there's something Jesus did once that justified everybody. He's talking about the whole. It's a way of speaking of the whole of who Jesus is, what he did in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension to the right hand. Verse 19, through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, but through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. There's an objective righteousness we have that comes to us called justification that we have in Christ. But when you believe that, once that becomes a part of you, once you are united to Christ, you are united to the whole Christ, and he becomes your sanctifier, and he begins to change you inside out, gradually from degree unto degree, by the Holy Spirit. As we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us to do his good pleasure. Now, one man's obedience. Verse 19 is worth reflecting on how we are made righteous. Through the obedience of the one man, Jesus' achievement was not simply to remove the penalty for our disobedience, wonderful though that is, but it was to obey for us as our representative head throughout his life, supremely in his death. While Adam was told that he would enjoy blessing if he obeyed God and yet chose to disobey, the second Adam knew he would face agony and death if he obeyed. And yet he resolutely walked in obedience to his father. When we read of Jesus, Jesus' continual loving obedience in the gospel, it is a matter of life and death to us because that obedience is our obedience. And if we are in Christ's instead of Adam. J. Gresham Machen, who uh, speaks as well today as he did in the 1940s, he was the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, said it like this. He said, at 
Or as a matter of fact, Christ has not merely paid the penalty of Adam's first sin and the penalty of the sins which we individually have committed, but also he has positively merited for us eternal life. He was, in other words, our representative, both in a penalty paying and in probation keeping. He paid the penalty a failed probation for us and he stood the probation for us Christ not only took the punishment by his death but merited for us the reward by his perfect obedience to God's law those are the two great things he has done for us Adam before he fell was righteous in the sight of God but he was still under the possibility of becoming unrighteous those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ not only are righteous in the sight of God but they are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous. In their case, the probation is over because Christ has stood it for them. And so the wonderful thing is, once you understand justification, you can't get unjustified if you're really justified. You can't out the grace of God. You cannot outrun the arms of God. If you belong to him, you are his. And he will never let you go. And the wonderful truth of that grace is that once united to Christ, you can't sever that union. That union is secure forever. Recounted in the lore, one other quote here from Meredith Klein actually, recounted in the lore about the founding of Westminster Seminary is the stirring testimony of J. Gresham Machen when he was dying. In a telegram he sent to John Murray, he said this, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. Here's Machen's strong comfort in death. He knew that the meritorious work performed by his Savior had been reckoned to his account as if he had performed it himself. God must certainly bestow on him the glorious heavenly reward for Jesus had earned it for him and God's name is just. Once he declares you right, you are right forever with him and that should give you confidence in life I'm not afraid of death I, I'm not too fond of dying but I'm not afraid of death because I know exactly where I'm going to be unless God is a liar and he is not it is impossible for God to lie he can't do that his promises are true now in verse 20 he seems to sort of take a, a left turn here because he seems to flow out of the context, but he has a point. And the point is, Paul is writing to a house church in Rome. And in that house church are many Jewish converts. And boy, they were tenaciously hanging on to the law because they believed the Torah could deliver you from sin. They believed that obedience to the law could sanctify you and the fact that it would remove from you the power of sin. The way to get better and grow is to become obedient to the law and eventually reach a level of perfection that God could not deny. And that's what they thought. And then Paul says, oh, those Jewish objectors, I forgot about them. Wait a second. Let's say something to them in verse 20. What does he say? He says something really rather amazing. In verse 20, he says what? Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ 
our Lord. Why did the law come? Now, here's the way the average Jew, faithful Judaizer, <laughs> or those who were in love with the law, sort of viewed the Bible. They said, no, Paul, you're not right. Here's how things are. Adam set the world off into a complete destruction. But Moses came along, and Moses received the law, and the law was given to God's people, but they failed. And so they're still hanging on to Moses as the second major figure. He's not. The second major figure, the only figure, is Jesus Christ himself. And so Paul is saying, why was the law given? And verse 20 is agreeing that the law makes a difference, but not in the positive way imagined by the Jewish objector. Instead, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. He makes a similar point in Galatians 3.19. When the formal law came through Moses, sin got more visible and became worse, for now ignorance was no form of defense. Paul may have in mind why we find the reading of God's standards provokes us to think about breaking them, which will, he will explain in Romans 7. Certainly he is teaching that the law proves that it's not a lack of knowledge which prevents us from obeying God and keeping his standards, but rather a lack of willingness and ability. We do not need to put in more effort. We need a rescue. He'll even tell us later that the law aggravates sin. You know, when I was a little kid, I was walking to the courthouse in my hometown because that's where a water fountain was, and I was thirsty. And I saw a sign in the yard of the courthouse that said what? Do not walk on the grass. Now, I'd never thought at all about walking on the grass until I read that sign. I said, well, who are they to tell me what I can walk on? That's the kind of attitude I had. I'm sorry. And so I started thinking in my little mind as a young boy, well, I wonder what's so bad about it. So I did. I walked on the grass. Went in the courthouse, got a drink of water, came out, walked on the grass. Nobody did anything. So I thought, big deal. Signs mean nothing. Until I broke one and got caught. Not by the police, but by my father. My father did not suffer fools gladly. You got one warning and then judgment. I didn't even get a warning on that one. I got judgment. Since then, I've never walked on the grass ever again. Why? Because the law aggravates sin. I know all of you drive 65 on the 215, don't you? If you do, you're, you're likely to be hit. You're in trouble. We live in a lawless world, don't we? Instead, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. And so he points to that. He is teaching that the law proves that it's not a lack of knowledge which prevents us from obeying God. It's not a lack of willingness or ability. It's not that we need to put in more effort. We need to rescue. But sin, which the law points up, did not have the last word. We do not have to die in Adam. God's grace to humanity is greater than humanity's rebellion against God. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Actually, verse 20 understates Paul's expression here. A better translation would be grace superabounded. Why did grace abound in that way? 
so that when once sin had reigned and all mankind faced death, now grace might reign that through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. At the cross, we see the worst that sin can do as humanity, of which each one of us is a part, crucified the Lord. But at the cross, we see also the most that sin can do cannot thwart God's salvation. At the cross, grace overwhelms and triumphs over death. The first Adam is not the last word for humanity. The second Adam, the perfectly obedient federal head, is. There is no hope at all without Jesus. There is certain hope with and in union to him. Now, one of the things that I think is important for us to consider as we close is the following. It was Tertullian, the church father, who said, the gospel is always crucified between two thieves. On the left is something called antinomianism, lawlessness, more, um, um, yeah, relativism, that's on the left. On the right of the gospel is always moralism and legalism. So the end of chapter 5 marks the end of the section in Paul's letter, a glorious section which he has laid out the gospel of justification by faith. The second, uh, I already said, Tertullian said that just as our Lord was crucified between two thieves, the great doctrine of justification, the gospel, is continually being crucified between two opposite heresies. The gospel keeps true truths together. God is holy, so our sins require that we be punished. The gospel tells us that we are more sinful than we could imagine, more than we would ever even dare believe. And it's very clear about our sinfulness. To forget this leads to a license or permissive lifestyle so that we might call it antinomian lawlessness. The second is this, God is gracious, so it's Christ, so in Christ our sins are dealt with. The gospel tells us we are more accepted in Christ, uh, that when God looks at us, he sees Christ. And to forget this leads to legalism and moralism. If you eliminate one of the other of these truths, you fall into legalism or liberalism. And liberalism here is not political liberalism, it's theological liberalism. You eliminate the joy and the release of the gospel without a knowledge of our extreme sin. The payment of the gospel seems trivial and does not electrify or transform us. But without a knowledge of Christ's completely debt-satisfying life and death, the knowledge of sin would crush us or compel us to deny and repress it. So what we see here is a gospel that meets us where we are but never leaves us where we are. It always takes us beyond. Martin Luther said this, and I close. All the prophets did foresee in spirit that Christ should become the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, blasphemer, etc., that ever was. For being made a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, it is not now an innocent person, uh, and without sins. Our most merciful Father sent his only Son into the world and laid upon him the sins of all men, saying, Be thou Peter, that denier.
call that persecutor and blasphemer and cruel oppressor. David, that adulterer. And so when we think of our Jesus and what he's accomplished for us, it is our only hope. Is that where your trust resides? Come to Christ. He will never turn you away. He runs to us when we repent. He doesn't beat us over the head with our sins. He died for them. He took them upon himself and offered himself as an atonement. Come to Christ. He's your only hope. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you today for this passage of Scripture that tells us a lot of things we would never know if we never read the Bible. There's so much here, so much good truth. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit can take this and work on us and make us new. Now, Father, we continue to pray that our relationship with Christ would become something more sure and certain as the Spirit seals in us that perfect work that Christ has done. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who are grateful to the depths of our being for our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.